Well, thank you, Josh. Good morning, Calvary Chapel, Elderette. Good afternoon, forgive me. Hey, turning your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 is where we will be this afternoon, and uh, I think I can get this done in the proper time. But, uh, you know, I had the privilege last year, it was April, when I was invited to speak at the conference that we just held this past weekend for my first time. And uh, I was remembering getting ready to leave last year and just thinking about the, the reality that an invitation given that I would be able to come and minister and leaving last year realizing that I was so much more ministered to. And uh, that is so much the case again this year, I had the privilege of bringing a gentleman from our church there in southern Maine. Chris and I flew in just a few days ago. It has been a bit of a whirlwind, but it is such a blessing to just see how the Lord is at work here. And I know you may hear that a lot. I don't know, but I can promise you from an outsider's perspective, looking on the body of believers here at Calvary Chapel Elderette, it is nothing short of supernatural. The Holy Spirit is flowing through this place, and it's a, a privilege to see in so many different facets how God is working. And I, I thought this uh, afternoon we'd look at a portion of Scripture that really, especially for Kenyans, for, for you who find yourselves living on the continent of Africa, I, I hope you would be encouraged this afternoon that here in the book of Acts, in light of what Jesus had said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, Acts chapter 1, and he said, you shall wait in the city, you shall receive power from on high, then you shall be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, into Samaria, and then the outer parts of the world. I, I know you all are aware of that. Please consider, as we look here in Acts chapter 8, that when God begins to send his gospel into the outer parts of the world, first Ju Jerusalem was indoctrinated by the gospel of Christ. We saw that in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. Then Judea. Right here in the eighth chapter, Samaria receives the gospel. And the very next place God sends his gospel is to Africa. God loves this continent. He loves this people. I'm so privileged to be a part of the Love the Bible and Change Africa conference two years in a row because there's a, there's a remarkable thing that we see here. And it's a little bit... Um, I don't know, it, it doesn't go according to man's wisdom. And you probably are aware of that. God operates so outside of man's wisdom. Oftentimes, he does it so counter of man's wisdom because when he does what he does, he receives all the glory for it. And as we look at this portion of Scripture, that's what we're going to see. So Acts chapter 8, look at verse 26. Let's read this portion of Scripture together, and we'll do a, a brief uh, exposition of the end of this chapter. Verse 26, it says this, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose, he went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah, the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and 
heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? He said, how can I? Unless someone guides me, he asked Philip to come up and to sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, in verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through... He preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Well, look at this narrative. This man, Philip, in the book of Acts, a few chapters ago, we were introduced to a man. It was during what was a great dispute in the growing church. God was doing a supernatural thing. The Holy Spirit had been poured out in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, 3,000 men are saved. In chapter 4, 5,000 men are saved. By the time we get to chapter 5, The Holy Spirit moving through our author, Dr. Luke, he just keeps saying things like, God continuously added to the church daily those who were being saved. So this supernatural growth is happening, but then in chapter 6, there was a dispute. Brothers and sisters, we all agree, when you get a growing church and a growing church, it doesn't take long for a dispute to arise. But the apostles, filled with the Holy Spirit, they, they had a plan. And in chapter 6, they said to themselves, we must summon amongst the multitude, amongst the Christians, we must find men who are full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, that we can appoint to the business of which the dispute was about. It was a very practical means. There was the neglect of the widow's distribution. Amongst those seven men that were chosen was Philip. I make that point because a man who was appointed for a very basic practical ministry, there was still a very high spiritual calling the apostles needed for this man, but very quickly he goes from being the deacon to, in the eighth chapter, he goes to being the evangelist. And that's because this man, Saul of Tarsus, the one who would become the Apostle Paul, in chapter 8 of the beginning of this chapter, a great persecution, it says in verse 1, had risen against the church. And the church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So this man who was once a deacon finds himself fleeing persecution. And look at verse 5 of Acts 8. Then Philip, he went down. Now, just so you know, down is actually north. In topography, it's going down in elevation. But Samaria is north of Jerusalem. Philip went down, in verse 5, to the city of Samaria. He preached Christ to them, the multitudes with one accord. They heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice. They came out of many who were possessed, many who were paralyzed and lame. They were healed, and there was great joy in the city. Let me stop there. 
brothers and sisters, try and imagine this city of Eldoret, that such a revival sweeps across, that sin at a large scale is being forsaken. That you could say of Eldoret, great joy was breaking out. That clubs, like to the left and our right, were shutting down because people were being saved. This was happening in Samaria. You know, the place where, uh, you know, no prominent Jew would go. Samaria has a little bit of a unsavory past. But God, by the Holy Spirit, through persecution, sends this man, Philip, into this area. And I say that to say, because think about the logic that we're looking at in verse 26. The logic, because social barriers are now being torn down in Samaria. Sorcery is being forsaken in Samaria. Souls are being saved in Samaria. The scriptures are being opened and being taught in Samaria. And then suddenly, the man that God's using in Samaria is told got to leave. That seemingly makes no sense. Verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise, go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And just in case we might think, oh, maybe there's an oasis there. He writes for us in the end of verse 26, this is desert. So this wonderful revival and this wonderful thing that God is doing and, and, and Philip is being, no, no, no doubt, the spearhead of this movement. And then God says, okay, turn around. Go to a desert. I mean, I believe this is a, a, a very, I don't know, a logical thing from man's perspective. I believe it seemingly is so illogical and God is so gracious that probably for this reason, God actually sends an angel. We don't see that all that much in the New Testament. God sends an angel. We don't know if it was Michael, if it was Gabriel. It could be Leo, an unnamed angel. God sends an angel and, and has to tell this man, Philip, listen, go south. Go away from where I've, I've called you. It says in verse 26, arise, go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. To add to the point I'm making about how illogical this must have seemed to pick up and leave the revival, I want to point out that scholars and those who study the ancient times that this is being lived out, there are primarily two roads that would lead, that would head toward Gaza. I've actually asked Preston to put up a photo that will just kind of show a little bit of what we're looking at. There are two roads that lead towards Gaza. One of them would be the straight road. Preston, if you have that photo, put that up for us, please. One road would be the one that would be, you know, the most logical. I highlighted it in blue. It goes a direct shot. It would go down towards the coast, and it would be, as any mathematician knows, the quickest way between two points is a straight line. That's not the road that he's told to go on. Remember, he says, go down to Jerusalem. So you've got to go from Samaria, which is to the north, go directly south in the red, which is Jerusalem, and then you go southwest. Anyone that knows the topography, everything below Jerusalem, it is barren desert. So you're trying to understand why would God not send him on the shorter and safer passage, the one that's more traveled, Instead, God's going to send him on the longer and the lonelier road, the one that is less traveled and no doubt more dangerous. So as if God's saying, hey, leave the revival isn't strange enough, God says, when you leave the revival, make sure you take the road that no one else wants to travel. You understand what I'm saying so far? So God is at work and we have to give great commendation that Philip is listening 
He's directed this way, and of course we find out why in verse 27. God's involved in this, right? Look at verse 27. So Philip arose, he went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, who had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah, the prophet. Preston, go ahead and just share that uh, photo of the map real quick. Ethiopia, you know this is part of the continent of Africa, there in the green. The circle there in the middle of the map is, of course, Jerusalem. That's a long distance this man has traveled. We find out he's leaving Jerusalem, so he's already been there. But just consider this. God is orchestrating something here. There's the believer, Philip, and there's also the inquirer, a man from Ethiopia. We're not given a name. We're given simply a nationality and a sense of nobility. You notice in verse 27, it was a man of great authority. We as human beings, we have a tendency to exaggerate. You know what exaggerate means, right? You know, sometimes your stories, they get taller and bigger and they become more exciting. God doesn't exaggerate. The word there, great authority, it's the Greek word megas, mega, wonderful, powerful, great authority has been given to this man. And we find out that this seems to be what we are told there, the man of great authority under Candace the queen, who was charged over all, not some, all of her treasury. So this is like a financier of the queen. This is a very, very powerful man, a very, very important man, someone that has a powerful role, an influential role. This is a man who has access to great money and gold and wealth. No doubt it was for this reason. This man was a eunuch. I don't think I need to give a biology lesson on what a eunuch is. You're aware. This is a decision made For any man, and this is in the biblical times, this goes all the way up to almost recent history in Europe, where if a man wanted to serve underneath a king or a queen or someone powerful, as a statement of loyalty saying, I will not have offspring that will one day rival your throne, I will willingly sacrifice the opportunity to to reproduce a eunuch. This is what we're seeing here. So a very powerful man, a man of great nobility, but what is a bit strange, and we have to consider in verse 27, why did he come to Jerusalem to worship? Why would he travel what scholars maintain by chariot would be an eight-week journey one way? Why would this man travel so far, leaving what would be a comfortable, affluent lifestyle in Ethiopia, serving as the secretary of treasury to a queen, Why would this man go so far to Jerusalem? And you understand that as you look at the Bible, any Gentile of the Old Testament that wanted to come under the umbrella of Judaism, there was really only two categories in which a Gentile could do that. The first, which was really the the higher calling, was a proselyte. Someone could become a proselyte. Well, to be a proselyte, meaning you were not born of the children of Abraham, you're not of the bloodline, but if you wanted to be a proselyte, that meant as a Gentile, you were committing fully to all of the Old Testament law. This was something that took great devotion, and to be a proselyte meant you had to at least commit to the three mandatory feasts, three times a year. 
We know this man couldn't have done that because if you're traveling 16 weeks round trip for one trip, times that by three mandatory feasts, that would exclude him from being a proselyte. But even greater, because of his being a eunuch, the law of God says in Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, he who is emasculated by mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. So we know this Gentile, this Ethiopian eunuch, he couldn't have been a proselyte. He had to be the lower category, which is known as simply a God-fearer. Now we're going to get to the 10th chapter in the book of Acts as you go on. We read about a Gentile man named Cornelius, a just man, one who feared God. Someone that wasn't a proselyte, but they had a healthy respect for the God of the Bible. Think about this. Why would a man of such authority, of such wealth, of such luxury, make such a pilgrimage to earn such a lowly title? A God-fearer? That, that, that was a very low echelon within the eyes of the Jewish people. Clearly, this man was in want. There was something lacking. Even though he had all the amenities of life, even though he had the comforts of life, no doubt he found a niche in life. He was serving in a role. He found an identity. There was something that was missing. He was dissatisfied. Okay, so think about what God is doing. You have a man who has everything, but really has nothing. Is very empty. And then you have a guy like Philip who seemingly has nothing. There's no horse, no chariot. He's probably got the bag on his back, maybe a canteen of water but he has everything. Philip has the joy and salvation of the Lord. And God is bringing these two together on a little desert road because God does that. He's setting all of this up. And in verse 28, sitting in his chariot on the desert road, and listen, this isn't like an Ethiopian eunuch all by himself on a nice wooden chariot. Picture like a stretch chariot full of all kinds of amenities, securities, a caravan. There's a lot of people that are taking this man and his gold and his luggage. This is a big caravan. And sitting on his chariot, it tells us he was reading Isaiah, the prophet. Most probable, this would have been the Greek translation, the Subtuagent. It was a very expensive scroll. This man was reading Old Testament Bible. So Philip which we find out in the book of Acts chapter 6, was a Grecian Hellenistic man, one who spoke the Greek language. In a very real sense, Philip was more qualified than even the 12 disciples. Those men weren't trained in the Greek like Philip was. A guy who simply volunteered to be a deacon. A few chapters later, God is bringing this man to bring the gospel to a continent because he was willing. In leaving a city like Samaria... What God was doing that Philip at the time couldn't understand, that in him leaving a revival in a city, God was going to affect an entire continent because of one man's faith. And, and notice, verse 29 and 30, the Spirit said to Philip, go near, overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? Now, I'm, I'm assuming at this point Philip is slowly putting the pieces together. Yes, he was obedient. At the same time, he may have been a little bit oblivious to what God was doing. Faith will do that. I believe, yes, he was willing to go, but he was wondering, God, what are you doing? I mean, think about, um, think about this church, Calvary Chapel, Elderette. Try and go back 12 or 13 years in your mind where a young man like Josh 
just getting married, just graduating the school of ministry, all the different opportunities in the United States, but just sensing the Lord was calling him thousands of miles away on a one-way ticket with his newly wed wife to Eldoret. Faith will, will make you do things, willing but wondering what you're going to do, obedient but a little bit oblivious of what God is going to do. This man is very commendable, Philip. But I bet at this point when he comes into a barren desert road and finally he sees this chariot, he realizes, okay, God, I see what you're doing. And, and how about in verse 30, Philip said to the man, the eunuch, do you understand what you are reading? Now, again, if you were with us yesterday at the conference and we were looking at the conversion of Saul, it's hard for us to understand the tone of what is communicated. I maintain probably one of two tones is how Philip said that. Maybe he was what we would say empathetic. Maybe he came up to the, the chariot hearing out loud this Ethiopian reading the script, and maybe he was saying, oh man, do you know what you're reading? Maybe he was empathetic. I suspect it wasn't that. I suspect it was more enthusiastic. I suspect what Philip said and in the tone in which he said it was, do you realize what you are reading? I mean, of all places in the scripture, of all places in just Isaiah's prophecy, he comes to this portion of scripture at this time on this long, long desert, lonely road. Uh, verse 31, he said, how can I unless someone guides me, says the eunuch. He asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. This is what I would call proverbially, and I, and I think you guys get this, um, this idiom. This is what you call a layup. You guys get that? You know, when, when, you, when you give an assistant basketball and all you got to do is just give a layup, it's like really easy to finish, right? God just gave Philip a layup. I mean, of all the portions of Isaiah's prophecy that talk about the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the warning of God's wrath, the warning of God's judgment, of all the places in 66 chapters of Isaiah, there's that one little portion, Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering of God, the sacrifice of God, the servant of God, ultimately the son of God. And what do you know? God's right on time as Philip is approaching this caravan. He hears this man saying out loud, Isaiah 53. God gave him a layup. It's, it's too easy. And, and, and let's consider this because we want application in our life, don't we? What did this man do that we can apply to our life? Most of you probably know what Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the first thing. That's something that God expects us to do. We trust in the Lord with all our heart. The second thing, lean not on your own understanding. God expects us to do that as well. Like when he's in Samaria and there's a great revival and an angel says, hey, leave, go to the desert. His own understanding would say, that doesn't make any sense. But God says, don't lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3 verse 5, in all your ways acknowledge him. That's the third thing God asks you and I to do. But then what is the fourth thing that God says, I'll take care of? And he shall direct your paths. 
you see the genius setup God's doing here? While this one man, the eunuch, a man who clearly was wanting, he was dissatisfied, even though he had the riches and the amenities of life, this one man who traveled so far, even to take a lowly title from the Jewish people, clearly there was something he was looking for and searching, but we have to agree that when we pick up in the story, he's already been to Jerusalem and he's leaving. In other words, he didn't find what he was looking for. No doubt he probably came to Jerusalem, he found self-righteousness, hypocrisy, legalism, empty religion. He goes on a pilgrimage, we don't know how long he's there, but when he begins to leave, he's still reading the prophecy, being like, God, what is all of this about? Who is this talking about? So at one point, God is working on this man who he realizes he's got a heart-seeking He realized this man is on a road that seems to have no joy, no satisfaction. God's very, very in tune with it. In fact, he's so in tune with the lonely, broken heart of an Ethiopian eunuch that at the same time that's happening, God is working on the heart of a very happy, joyful, satisfied, effective minister, Philip, and says, Philip, leave. There's a man I want you to meet. There's a man I want you to come and communicate the truth of God's word. And this is the portion of Scripture and what we're looking at. It's a remarkable thing. Verse 36, they went down the road. They came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Do you know what happened in those moments? As Philip opens his mouth in in the chariot, as he begins to preach Jesus as it told us he did, it says in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth, beginning at the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Can you imagine all that time on that journey, all the things from the Old Testament he was preaching about Christ? But at some point, no doubt, we have to acknowledge that it came to the cross. It came to the sacrifice of Jesus. It came to the burial, the death. It came to the resurrection. And in all of that, he's finally saying, and it's not just that God sent his son died for our sins, buried them in a tomb, three days later rose again, no doubt Philip was probably teaching the Ethiopian eunuch about baptism. Likewise, we must follow in that example. Once we've been saved, we get buried like Christ was. We come out of the water like he was raised to life and newness of breath. And no doubt, just because God has been so on time at this point, I strongly believe that even though it's a desert road, And even though it's a barren place, it's right as they're coming to this conversation about baptism, boom, what do you know? There's a little oasis. And the man says, as they came down the road in verse 36, see, here's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? God is putting this all together. Now listen, up until this point in the book of Acts, I made mention of it briefly. The Holy Spirit moving on Dr. Luke in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Focus on God's working on the multitudes. 3,000 get saved. 5,000 get saved. Daily multitudes are being added to the church. And that's a wonderful thing. God is into the multitudes. At the same time, most probably in the room will not be preachers to multitudes. And what's important to realize is then beginning in chapter 6 of the book of Acts, chapter 7 of the book of Acts, 8, 9, and 10, God stops focusing on the multitudes of the church and he starts focusing on uh, 
Stephen, we have a whole chapter on him. Philip, we have a whole chapter on him. Saul, we have a whole chapter on him. Cornelius in chapter 10. God begins to take the focus off the multitudes, and he begins to spend a lot of time in the book of Acts focusing on individuals. And this story reminds us that God is so set on the individual. And what God will do from one willing individual like Philip, he is taking the gospel message from Jerusalem to then Judea, to Samaria, and then he's going to use that very same man to go find a very, very powerful, influential man heading back to Africa, and he's going to get saved. And church history is rich with what happens to the ministry of this man. Let me just read a brief, very brief article concerning that context as a way of encouragement, fellow ministers in the room, fellow ministers that maybe you realize, God, I I don't think I'm going to be preaching to multitudes. I, I don't know if that's what your call on my life is. Let me, as a way of encouragement, just remind you of what the ministry to even one person can do. This is an article that I think you'll be greatly encouraged by. The title of the article is, It Began with a Sunday School Teacher. It was the year 1858 in the city of Boston. Edward Kimball was a young Sunday school teacher who made it a habit to personally give each student in his class an opportunity to accept Christ. The Sunday school teacher, however, was concerned about one of his students who worked in a shoe store. So one day, Mr. Kimball visited that young man at the store, which he found in the back of the store stocking shelves. He led that young teenager to Christ that day. His name was Dwight L. Moody. D.L. Moody eventually left the shoe business and became one of the greatest evangelists of all time. Moody became an international speaker and then toured the British Isles. He preached in a little chapel pastored by a young man named Frederick Meyer. In his sermon, he told the story of a Sunday school teacher. That message changed Pastor Frederick Meyer's ministry, inspiring him to become an evangelist like D.L. Moody. Meyer eventually preached in America. And one day in Northfield, Massachusetts, where there was a young preacher, heard him say, if you're not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? That remark led J. Wilbur Chapman to respond to God's call on his life. Wilbur Chapman went on to become an effective evangelist. He enlisted the help of a volunteer named Billy Sunday. He helped him set up for the Crusades. Billy Sunday learned how to preach by watching Chapman and eventually took over Chapman's ministry, becoming a dynamic evangelist. Billy Sunday's preaching brought thousands to Christ, inspired by a Billy Sunday crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina. A group of Christian men dedicated themselves to reaching the city for Christ. They invited an evangelist named Mordecai Ham. He came and began to hold a series of evangelistic meetings. The year was 1932. A local farmer then loaded his pickup truck with his neighbors and brought them to the meetings. One was a 16-year-old lanky boy who sat in the crowd each night spellbound by the message. Each evening, the preacher seemed to be shouting and waving his finger at the young man. Night after night, the teenager came, and finally, on the last night, he went forward and gave his life to Christ. That teenager's name was Billy Graham. Billy Graham has communicated the gospel to more people than any other person in human history, and yet it all started with one Sunday school teacher who was just committed to giving the gospel to one of his students. This is what we see with Philip. In fact, theologian... G. Campbell Morgan once said, if Christ is hindered today, it is because there is some Philip who's not willing to go. Isn't this a remarkable thing? 
Is this a setup God is doing? Absolutely. They came down, talked about baptism. Next thing you know, there's water. And he says, what forbids me from being baptized? So here's a man, the eunuch, whose heart is responding to the preaching. He wants to follow in obedience to the Ethiopian uh, following Philip's ministry, following the obedience of the word of God to, to be baptized. And Philip said in verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, you may. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. He commanded then both that the chariot would stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. I mean, th this is wonderful, right? This man professes the person of Jesus, the title that he's Christ. He professes that it's the son of God. And here in a little desert road on the Judean wilderness heading back to Africa, this man is baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you try and imagine, as we're closing here, as we're, as we're wrapping up this message, and you try and imagine the joy that's overflowing in this new convert's life. A man who went on such a pilgrimage, who was so empty, he was so dissatisfied, and even on his pilgrimage, he leaves Jerusalem still empty, dissatisfied, wondering, what is this all about? And yet God and the, the, the heaven above was fully aware of this man's seeking fully aware of the road he was on, to the point that God was going to call a man like Philip to leave a revival and go down a road that seemingly made no sense to go find and meet the need of this one. And so he comes out of the water. You can imagine he's thinking about all these things. He's thinking about the excitement. And no doubt, as the eunuch comes out of the water, he's probably got so many more wonderful questions to ask. And you imagine, right? He says, Philip, Phil, Philip. <laughs> In verse 39, when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. He dunks him in the water, he pulls him out of the water, and then it's just the eunuch left. Can you imagine? He's gone. It says again in verse 39, the eunuch went down into the water, he baptized him. In verse 39, when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotos, that's 70 miles away. And passing through, he preached, that's Philip, in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. I don't know what that Ethiopian eunuch thought on the way home. Maybe he's thinking, did I imagine all that? I mean, what where'd the guy go? But that thought quickly faded away because he realized his heart was full something he had never experienced before. He had experienced the conversion, the born-again experience. This is a man who no doubt is heading back into a very powerful position with a brand-new nature, a brand-new mission. And again, church history is littered with what this man's ministry probably looked like in Africa. God cares about Africa. He sends the gospel to Africa. And there's two areas that I think as we close we can consider for you and I, brothers and sisters, this afternoon. Maybe there's someone here today that identifies with the, the eunuch, the Ethiopian who has been on a long journey of seeking and searching. And maybe even on that journey, you can't complain. You know you've had luxuries. You've had comfortability. To some degree, maybe you've experienced uh, influence and authority like this man did. Yet you find that all the things the world has to offer, it doesn't satisfy to the point that you'll go on a long pilgrimage and maybe the pilgrimage of religion has left you empty. Maybe there's someone here that identifies with that. 
And yet maybe for the majority of us in the room, maybe we identify more with Philip. Maybe we acknowledge that God is, is sending me somewhere. He's, he's put me somewhere. And, and to the world's wisdom, and, and to be honest, maybe with your own rationality, it doesn't make sense. Maybe you're thinking, why am I an elderette? What, what, God, what do you want me to do here? But can we acknowledge that Philip, maybe he was a bit oblivious, but he was obedient? Maybe he was wondering what God was going to do, but at least he was willing to go. And if you think again about what we're, we're told there in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. And God says, and I will direct your paths. And I hope we're encouraged that what the ministry of just one person can do. The, the, we, we think about the ministry of that one Sunday school teacher and the trickle-down effect it had to then Billy Graham would get saved 60 years later. And the entire world would be touched by his ministry. I, I think about, in closing, two and a half years ago, serving on staff at Calvary Chapel, Bangor, Ken Graves was my pastor. You know Ken. Josh is pastor as well. I think one of the greatest men, the, one of the greatest disciples of men in all the universe. Love that man and his ministry. Grateful for him. And serving on staff at Calvary Chapel, Bangor, I was so blessed. I was living on campus with my wife and our, our twins. He was giving me opportunity to do so many things. And then in 2020, when the world started getting a little shaken up, what seemed to be completely crazy, I sensed the Lord was calling me to leave this comfortable place full of ministry to go south to a place like Portland, Maine that was rated number two most unchurched city in America in 2019. Thinking, Lord, what are, you, what are you doing? My family members were saying, what are you doing? <laughs> Friends and family, Christian brothers and sisters were saying, what are you doing? And just sensing, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but Lord, I know you've proven to be faithful in times past. I'll trust you in this. And to see in two and a half years later, the ministry that God has entrusted me and my family with, and the leadership team, and seeing people getting saved and baptized and the church growing, it's a wonderful thing. It's no different with the story here with Calvary Chapel Eldoret and Josh's ministry. And it's no different what God wants to continue to do here in Eldoret. That if we would simply just be willing to listen to God, learn to hear the voice of God, if we'd be people that are willing to go even when it doesn't make sense, that God can truly change and affect Africa. He can change and affect Eldoret the same way that Samaria and no doubt Africa was 2,000 years ago. Lord, thank you for your word today. Lord, I'm so grateful for the Holy Scripture that we have. Lord, we have these examples of Philip, of Saul of Tarsus. Lord, we have examples of Peter, and John, and these missionaries, Lord, broken men that you just used, flawed men that you used because they were willing, they had faith. And Lord, we understand as we study this that, Lord, yes, you're into the multitudes, and yes, Lord, you're into the masses being saved, but Lord, you're into individuals. Lord, you were very aware of the lonely, dissatisfying road that the eunuch was on. You were so aware of it that you sent one of your servants to go and minister to him. Lord, help us to be that way. I pray for myself and I pray for the church family here in Eldoret that Lord, that we would have a sensitivity to your spirit. That Lord, we would be your hands and feet. As Josh said this morning in communion, that we would be pleading on behalf of you Lord, that we would be the type of people that truly are trying to reach the lost world. Lord, thank you for Josh, for the elders here, the church. Would you continue to bless it? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Grace and peace to you.